Good to see you folks this uh, Lord's Day morning. And um, the notes that you have should say of God's decree, number five, chapter three, London Baptist Confession. And um, let's go ahead and read. You have, um, I'll read from the notes here, Romans 8, 28 to, to 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And let us pray, shall we? Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity we have to come together as a fellowship of the people of God. I thank you for uh, each one that you've been pleased to bring here this Lord's Day morning. Thank you for the, the privilege and the joy and the glory of the assembly of the saints. And I pray that uh, you, would, you would bless our time together. I, I pray that, uh, uh, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would uh, give us insight and understanding into your pure and holy and glorious word, I pray. For the help of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, guide and direct me, and I, I pray that you would help me to convey these, these rich thoughts in, in a way that is um, fitting with your own um, motivation, with your own understanding, and in a way that would be edifying to our souls, in a way that would um, enlighten our minds and encourage our souls and help us in our, our thinking and, and help us in our, our living for thy glory. So we commit uh, this time to thee and pray that you would be glorified and honored in it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, I just heard my phone make a weird little sound here, so I'm going to turn it off. Um. Okay. Um, this is um, we're moving. This is the fifth study that we've had in the, in the third chapter of the London Baptist uh, Confession of God's decrees, and in our last time together. Um, we, we emphasize the unconditional nature of God's decrees, the unconditional nature. And uh, you will notice that as you have an opportunity, um, when you read through the confession, by the way, uh, Mark was showing me last week that we have a lot of 1689 confessions. So if you don't have one, make sure and, and, and see me and we can get you one. Uh, we've, we've got plenty of them. But when you, when you read the confession, um, you, you, you notice there's a connection because the, the next three paragraphs, they all draw our attention specifically to the doctrine of predestination. That is paragraph three, paragraph four, paragraph five in the confession. They all emphasize the, the biblical doctrine of predestination. In your notes, I have a quote here from uh, R.L. Dabney uh, in his work uh, on systematic theology. And, and he writes, while God's decree is his purpose as to all things, his predestination um, may be defined to be his purpose concerning the everlasting destiny of his rational creatures. The everlasting destiny of his rational creatures. He goes on to say his election is his purpose of saving eternally some men and angels uh, 
Election and reprobate, excuse me, and reprobation are both included in predestination. So that there's a movement in, in thought from the general in particular, um, especially to God's purpose and plan as it bears directly upon the eternal destiny of, of men and women. And I thought this quote here by John Calvin uh, really helps us to know, and it's followed by, by Lorraine Bentner, but it helps us to know what mindset, I think, to adopt when we're considering this kind of a subject. So it's in your notes here. Calvin says, The discussion of predestination, a subject of itself rather intricate, is made very perplexed and therefore dangerous by human curiosity, which no barriers can restrain from wandering into into forbidden labyrinths and from soaring beyond its sphere as if determined to leave none of the divine secrets unscrutinized or unexplored. First then, let them remember that when they inquire into predestination, they penetrate into the inmost recesses of divine wisdom where the careless and confident intruder will obtain no satisfaction to his curiosity. For we know that when we have exceeded the limits of the word, we shall get into a, a devious and irksome course in which errors, slips, and falls will be inevitable. Let us then, in the first place, bear in mind that to desire any more knowledge of predestination than that which is unfolded in the word of God indicates a great folly as to wish to walk through impassable roads or to see in the dark. Nor let us be ashamed to be ignorant of some things relative to a subject in which there is a, a kind of learned ignorance. And then Lorraine Bettner in the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination says, we are, we are not under obligation to explain these truths. We are only under obligation to state what God has revealed in his word and to vindicate these statements as far as possible from misconception and objections. So what I would um, like to do uh, this morning is offered two further introductory remarks as we approach this particular section, and um, and the two introductory remarks which are in your that's the, that's the that constitutes the entirety of the lesson this morning, and um, I, you know depending on what path you've traveled and I know you've all you know come we've all come from different directions here in the evangelical world you may have noticed you may have not not have noticed that doctrines like predestination and election are are sometimes vigorously opposed. I don't know how, to what extent that has been your experience. Um, I have a book here. It's a biography of uh, Ernest C. Riesinger. He was a greatly used of God and the recovery of the form thought in the last generation. And just to give you an idea here that when I say that these are the kinds of doctrines that are, are vigorously opposed, at least by some, but I'm not just setting up a straw man. This is, this is what he writes. He says, Dr. Adrian Rogers is pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. His church has grown from 9,000 members in 1972 to more than 26,000 members today, which would have been about 2002. A staunch defender of biblical inerrancy, he has thrice been appointed the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. In his correspondence, sermons, and pamphlets, he seems to delight in placing Baptist Calvinists in the worst possible light by using unrestrained language to describe fellow believers whose chief desire is to understand and obey the word of God. For example, Irresistible grace, he says, means that God is going to zap you no matter what. Calvinists are the chosen frozen, the elite, the satisfied, the cheese and wine theologians. On the 13th of March 2000, he preached a radio message in which he dubbed belief in unconditional election as liable against God. He accused Ernie and correspondents of having more zeal for the cause of Calvinism than for missions and evangelism. He equated, excuse me, he equated the God of Calvinism with the God of Islam and stated, I refuse to let my church be dampened down by a form of incipient fatalism. 
Another evangelist from Texas, Freddie Gage, declared, There's not a nickel's worth of difference between liberalism, five-point Calvinism, and dead orthodoxy, because all are enemies of soul winning. So this is representative, representative at least of some thinking out there when it comes to doctrines of like this that we're considering uh, this morning. And um, so, but at least a, a part of my goal, it's, it's not so much to uh, just, you know, arm you with, uh, with ammo for debate, although we believe that it's scriptural, but I, I want you hopefully to increasingly sense the, 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 the beauty and the excellency of these kinds of doctrines and, and appreciate them and my, my hope that they would be sweet and precious to your soul. So I think inappropriate in, in, in approaching it, um, uh, there, there's kind of two main thoughts I would suggest for your thinking this morning. And the first one is this, kind of in light of what I just shared with you. Number one is a diminished uh, zeal for the salvation of souls is not the fault of the doctrine of predestination or election. Uh, a diminished zeal for the salvation of souls, that's not the fault of predestination nor election. Now, it's possible that somebody who embraces these kinds of doctrines doesn't have the, the concern for souls that he or she ought to have, but it's not the fault of these doctrines. And let me encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and then verses uh, 4 and 5. Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5. The Apostle Paul writing here, he says, he writes, just as I, he, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. And then notice verse 11. Paul writes, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now turn, if you would, back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Romans uh, chapter 8 and verse 29. Romans 8, 29. Um, Paul, well, we, we did look at this, but Paul writes, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Then verse 29, <clears throat> For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then if you just turn a page to the right to Romans chapter 9 and verse 11. Romans chapter 9 and verse 11. And Paul writes, for though the twins were not yet born and not, had, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So we have the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these kinds of verses. But look at the beginning of chapter 9 here. He, he writes, I, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow an unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren and my kinsmen according to the flesh. So that tells you where his heart is at with respect to the unsaved. Then notice the, the next chapter, chapter 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. The Apostle Paul's life, as you're aware, was spent in, in, in arduous labors for the advancing of the gospel. He suffered relentless hardships in the advancing of the gospel. Uh, yet much of our understanding of these kinds of doctrines come from his, from his pen. And uh, I, myself, as I know that you're probably aware, have 
um, found benefit in reading um, the life of George Whitfield. He was an 18th century uh, preacher, and, uh, and his labors are like the Apostle Paul's. It's, it's hard to fathom. He died at the age of 55 and really just sort of burnt himself out in, in communicating the gospel. J.C. Ryle indicated that no Englishman, I believe, dead or alive, has equaled him. And Arnold Dallimore, and, um, in, in his biography of Whitfield, which we have in the library, communicates uh, really what the source of his zeal was. I mean, what kept him going? And and that's in your notes here. Uh, Whitfield says the doctrines of our election and free justification in Christ Jesus are daily more and more pressed upon my heart. They fill my soul with a holy fire and afford me great confidence in God my Savior. I hope we shall catch fire from each other and that there will be a holy emulation amongst us who shall most debase man and exalt the Lord Jesus. Nothing but the doctrines of the Reformation can do this. All others leave free will in man and make him in part at least a savior to himself. My soul, come now thou near the secret of those who teach such things. I know Christ is all in all. Man is nothing. He hath a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven, till God worketh in him to will and to do for his good pleasure. Oh, the excellency of the doctrine of election and of the saints' final perseverance. I'm persuaded till a man comes to believe and feel these important truths. He cannot come out of himself, but when convinced of these and assured of their application to his own heart, he then, he then walks by faith indeed. I bless God, his spirit has convinced me of our eternal election by the Father through the Son, of our free justification through faith in his blood, of our sanctification as a consequence of that, of our final perseverance and glorification as a result of all. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, these I am persuaded God has joined together. These neither men nor devils shall ever be able to put us under. Was there any fitness foreseen in us except a fitness for damnation? I believe not. No, God chose us from eternity. He called us in time, and I'm persuaded will keep us from falling finally till time shall be no more. The following paragraph is, is from a, a book called Southern Baptist and the Doctrine of Election. By, it's written by a fellow named Robert B. Self, and this has a relationship to, well, maybe these doctrines are an impediment to missions. Uh, he writes about William Carey, has been named the father of modern missions. In 1792, he helped organize the English Baptist Missionary Society. The next year, he went to India as one of its first missionaries. Uh, Kenneth Good, in, in his book, Our Baptist Calvinist States, he went to India as a particular Baptist and remained in that fellowship until he died. His convictions were those of Andrew Fuller, his loyal supporter in England. Earl Hulse declares the group which associated with Andrew Fuller and included Pierce, Ryland, and Carey stood in the tradition of the 1689 Confession. In 1805, Carey drew up his form of agreement, which gave direction to the brethren of the mission of Serampur in their labors. The following statement is taken from the first paragraph. We are sure that only those who are ordained to eternal life will believe, and that God alone can add to the church such as shall be saved. Nevertheless, we cannot but observe with admiration that Paul, the great champion for the glorious doctrines of free and sovereign grace, was the most conspicuous for his personal zeal in the work of persuading men to be reconciled to God. And then John Newton, along the same lines, <clears throat> excuse me, on the doctrine of election and final perseverance, he says, they who believe there is any power in man by nature whereby he can turn to God may contend for a conditional election upon the foresight of faith and obedience 
But while others dispute, let you and me admire. For we know that God foresaw us as we were in a state utterly incapable either of believing or obeying unless he was pleased to work in us to will and to do according to his own good pleasure. This is again Newton, and it's from a sermon on John chapter 1, verse 29. It's on the Lamb of God as the great atonement. He says, The exceeding great number, uh, once dead and trespassed in sins, who shall be found in his right hand at the great day of his appearance, are frequently spoken of in appropriate and peculiar language. They are styled his sheep, for whom he laid down his life, his elect, his own, those to whom it is given to believe in his name and concerning whom it was the Father's good pleasure to predestinate them to the adoption of children. By nature, they're children of wrath, even as others, and no more disposed of themselves to receive than truth and those who obstinately and finally reject it. Whenever they become willing, they are made so in a day of divine power. And wherein they differ, it is grace that makes them to differ." Passages in the scripture to this purpose are innumerable, and though much ingenuity has been employed to soften them and to make them speak the language of an hypothesis, they are so plain in themselves that he who runs may read. It's not the language of conjecture, but of inspiration, that they whom the Lord God did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. And though some serious persons perplex themselves with needless and painful reasonings with respect to the sovereignty of God and his conduct towards mankind, they all, if truly spiritual and enlightened, stand upon this very ground in their own experience. Many who seem to differ from us by way of argumentation perfectly accord with us when they simply speak of what God has done for their souls. They know and acknowledge as readily as we that they were first found of him when they sought him not, and that otherwise they neither should nor could have sought him at all, nor can they give any better reason than this why they are saved out of the world, that it pleased the Lord to make them his people. Okay, so a diminished... A diminished zeal for the salvation of souls, that's not the fault of election. It's not the fault of predestination. Paul is, is a great case in point. George Whitfield in the history of the church and many others are case in points with respect to that. So in terms of, that's the first point of preparation for the predestination that we'll be considering uh, next week. How are you guys doing? I apologize for the scratchiness and whatever else is going on here. It's just kind of the way it is today. So, Anyway, a second consideration that will help us to uh, appreciate the doctrine of predestination and election, and I, th- I find this to be extremely compelling to my own heart, it's that, that any serious reflection upon the biblical description, the biblical description of unsaved man requires an embracing and appreciating of these doctrines. That is, when we ask the question, why is it that a person, any person, is truly saved at a particular point in time, and we we appeal, you and I would appeal to the doctrine probably of effectual calling. Uh, You might turn to uh, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13 and following. This is the Apostle Paul giving a, a testimony of when he was converted. Galatians chapter 1. Um, and then beginning in verse uh, 13. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. He says, 
For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But notice verse 15, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So the Apostle Paul, he's talking here about his Damascus Road experience. And, and why is it that he was converted then? You might have thought, wondered about this. How come he wasn't converted in Acts chapter 7 when he heard Stephen's sermon? It was a good sermon. There was not a, there was not a problem with that. But, but that, that particular point in time, it pleased God to call him. The next question is, why does God call somebody at any particular point in time? And our perspective is because they were predestined, because they were elected or chosen him before the foundation of the world. So he regenerates them by the Holy Spirit. He removes the heart of stone. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It's a work of God in the soul. Um, so I want to impress upon you for a few moments that man's condition requires that, that God does this immediate, profound work in the soul, um, and, and he does it to those whom he has chosen. So the confession um, in chapter 9, paragraph 3, <clears throat> excuse me, defines total inability in this way or total depravity in this way. Um, man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, he's not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So total depravity helps us to understand why men and women don't respond to the gospel. Um, you and I have all had opportunity to speak with someone about their souls and, and whenever we're able to communicate the most rudimentary elements of the gospel you need to repent you need to come to christ your eternal destiny is as at stake there's heaven there's eternal destruction we might ask the question why would anybody in their right mind not immediately repent and fly to christ why wouldn't they do that and the biblical answer is they are not in their right mind or they would and so th this helps us to understand that. Notice, consider some general support for this, this particular doctrine, total depravity. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Calvin writes, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart. Moses has traced the cause of the deluge to external acts of iniquity. He now ascends higher and declares that men were not only perverse by habit and by the custom of evil living, but that wickedness was too deeply seated in their hearts to leave any hope of repentance. He certainly would not have more forcibly asserted that the depravity was such as no moderate remedy might cure. Moses teaches us that the mind of those concerning whom he speaks was so thoroughly imbued with iniquity that the whole presented nothing but what that was to be condemned. For the language he employs is very emphatical. It seemed enough to have said that their heart was corrupt but not content with this word. He expressly asserts every imagination of the thoughts of the heart and adds the word only as if he would deny that there was a drop of good mixed with it continually. Now, the more correct interpretation is that the word had then become so hardened, excuse me, that the world had then become so hardened in its wickedness and was so far from any amendment or from entertaining any feeling of penitence 
that it grew worse and worse as time advanced, and further that it was not the folly of a few days, but the inveterate depravity which the children, having received as by hereditary right, transmitted from their parents to their descendants. Nor do they rashly distort the passage to extend it to the whole human race. So when David says that they all have revolted, they are all they all have become unprofitable. There is none who does good, not one. Their throat is an open, open sepulchre. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He deplores truly the impiety of his own age. Yet Paul does not scruple to extend it to all men of every age. And with justice, for it is not a mere complaint concerning a few men, but a description of the human mind when left to itself, destitute of the Spirit of God. Genesis 8.21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy ever every living thing as I have done. It behooves us more deeply to consider his design, for it was the will of God that there should be some society of men to inhabit the earth. If, however, they were dealt with according to their deserts, they would, there would be necessity for a daily deluge. Moreover, God here declares what would be the character of men even to the end of the world. It is evident that the whole human race is under the sentence of condemnation on account of the depravity and wickedness. Let men therefore acknowledge that inasmuch as they are born of Adam, they are depraved creatures and therefore can conceive only sinful thoughts until they become the new workmanship of Christ and are formed by his spirit to a new life. Ephesians 2.1 you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among Paul says this, among them too, we all lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. A few other texts. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Proverbs 29, Who can say I've cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20, There's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 7.29, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Just to kind of break this down a little bit. Verses which especially... Um, relate to the nature of man's heart. John Owen is helpful here. He says, The heart in the scripture is variously used, sometimes for the mind and understanding, sometimes for the will, sometimes for the affections, sometimes for the conscience, sometimes for the whole soul. Generally, it denotes the whole soul of man and all the faculties of it, not absolutely, but as they are one principle of moral operations, as they concur in, in our doing good or evil. Ecclesiastes 9.3 there is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Jeremiah, the heart is more deceitful than all else, desperately sick. Who could understand it? Mark 7, 21, from within, out of the heart, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. These, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And then, then verses which reveal the extent to which sin has affected man's mind, as we've made some reference to. This is probably a, a, a really good, this is, this is a really good proof text for this. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Here's why. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. They are spiritually appraised. The problem is not intellectual. The problem is spiritual. Romans 8.7, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul writes, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience is defiled. And then verses that reveal the extent to which a sin has affected man's affections, what he loves. Um, John 3.19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. And then um, 2 Timothy 3.1, realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then in verses that depict man's enslavement to sin, John 8, 8, 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. All men and women are sinners, therefore they are the slaves of sin. Verses that show that man in his unconverted state resides in spiritual darkness. Ephesians 5, 8, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Verses which reveal man's inability to respond to God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 13, 23, question, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Matthew seven sixteen, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad, bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the, the point here is any serious reflection uh, upon un, a man's unsaved condition facilitates a great, deep, glorious appreciation for the doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of election. If that was not the case, nobody would ever repent, and nobody would ever come to Christ as their Savior. And, and one of the things, we're, we're done here, um, a couple things here just kind of for your own thinking process as we close out is I cannot imagine the Apostle Paul being ashamed of these doctrines. I cannot imagine him saying, well, let's just not talk about election, shall we? Let's just not talk about predestination. He, he gloried in these doctrines. It's what, it's what gave him confidence that anybody will be saved. The only confidence you and I have that one other person will ever be saved is right here. It's they were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. One of the last texts I have written down here. You might turn to Acts chapter 18. We'll end here. Acts chapter 18 and verses 9 through 11. Acts chapter 18 and verses 9 uh, through 11. Acts 18 verse 9. The Lord said to Paul, In the night by vision do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you. And then he says this, For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. He said, I have many people in this city. What does that mean? I think it means they're not saved yet, but they are the people of God, and they will be saved when you go and preach the gospel, and I am pleased to call them to myself. So...
shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning for your, your holy word. I, I pray that our time together, considering this rich truth so clearly revealed in holy scripture, that you would give us the mind of the spirit and you would give us understanding. And I, I pray it would be for your glory in our souls. And I, I pray that we would be increasingly thankful that you've been pleased to choose us in your son before the foundation of the world. I pray the effect that it would help all of us to have a, a greater, deeper concern for the salvation of the, the loss and the assurance that you are able to save those whom you have chosen in yourself. So I pray that the time together will be productive, helpful to our thinking process, and also uh, that our, our fellowship would be uh, precious and, and sweet. You would prepare our hearts for a morning worship that you're uh, precious Holy Spirit would work in our midst and, and give us understanding into your word. Might it all redound to thy glory and might it all be for the good of our own souls. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.